so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Turned to the other and said, we don't know how lucky we are. And the Cuban stopped and said, how lucky you are. I had some place to escape to. And in that sentence, he told us the entire story. If we lose freedom here, there's no place to escape to. This is the last stand on earth. I'm saying that you cannot say that numbers collected at the employer's place of business reflect simply the employer's policies. Those, num those numbers reflect underlying conditions in the whole society, just as numbers collected at a hospital do not show you that people are sick because they're in the hospital. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. You're tuning in to The Unveiled Patriot with yours truly, Travis Masterbone, and this is episode 16, titled Anatomy of Crisis and From Cradle to Grave. Quote, The Great Depression was produced, or at the very least, made far worse by perverse monetary policies followed by the U.S. authorities, not free market capitalism, end quote. The late, great Milton Friedman. Milton Friedman, so we're back. Free to choose episode three, titled Anatomy of Crisis. And in this episode, he makes a very controversial observation and statement about the Great Depression, contrary to narrative and popular belief, he points out that it is a myth that the Great Depression is contributed solely to the free market enterprise. And he once again reveals that the real cause was the unseen failure of government policy and action or inaction, I would say. And his argument and evidence is well thought out and presented in this episode, and it will translate quite nicely into the second part of this show, his fourth episode titled From Cradle to Grave, where we will dissect the very popular government intervention known as the welfare system. This one is one of my favorite episodes for sure. Thomas Sowell, debate portion, I mean, he just dismantles. It's really, really fantastic and entertaining. I, again, encourage you to watch it moving forward. The Great Depression, the Great Depression. I'm sure we've heard of it, hopefully. This occurred in 1929 to 1939, but how many people actually know what exactly occurred, or at least some of the cascade of events that occurred? But one thing is for sure, for years and decades, it's been blamed on free market capitalism. So again, that depression time frame, 1929 to 1939, it didn't just occur in the U.S. It occurred all over the world, varying times. But one thing to note is that in the 1920s for the U.S., they were called the Roaring Twenties. They it doubled the nation's total wealth in the time frame of 1920 to 1929, and then that turned into the worst economic downturn in the history of the industrialized world. It was an epic boom that ended in a cataclysmic bust. And it's funny, you can look up online and see some of the graphs of the 
Dow Jones Industrial Average in the 1920s, you'll see peak growth, nice and high, and then boop, falling off a cliff right when 1929 hit. It is a staggering image. It paints a vivid picture of reality. And yes, again, it was felt all over the world. Global gross domestic product declined 26.7%. And then the peak global unemployment, 25%. So again, the Great Depression, it began in the U.S. And this may sound familiar, the Wall Street stock market crash known as the Great Crash, October 29th. Share prices on the New York Stock Exchange completely collapsed, came known to be as uh, Black Thursday, wiped out millions of people's money that they invested. All their savings, borrowed money, invested in buying stocks, just wiped out completely. And again, I keep mentioning this cascade of events Once this occurred, consumer spending, future investments, it all dropped dramatically. And this translated into a steep decline in a lot of sectors, right? So especially the industrial industry, industrial output in general had to slow down. Production had to slow. And then the worst part, it really, really affected employment. And so, again, in order for companies to stay afloat and make a profit, you know, slowing down production is one thing, but it always leads to some cutback, mass firings of workers. And so unemployment was tragically high. Approximately 15 million Americans were unemployed and nearly half the country's banks failed. And we'll get into that in grave detail. But this rippled into mass foreclosures, repos, and, you know, we've all seen the unforgettable footage of, like, bread lines, people digging through trash, soup kitchens, uh, the homelessness, etc. Also, farmers, they couldn't afford to harvest crops. This was also during a time of severe drought. Go figure, when it rains, it pours. <laughs> but no joke, it was a catastrophic, catastrophic time, to say the least. And um, today... Milton Freeman, he really does extrapolate and get really, really into this on what caused it and why. And it's important to note that in mid-1929, prior to Black Thursday and the collapse of the stock exchange, business was already experiencing that uh, not only that drought I just mentioned for farmers and agriculture, but also was experienced a recession. And so it's important to note that this crash that occurred in New Year in New York, plus with the bank failures, Milton claims that this intensified the natural recession, creating a crisis, which is why he named this episode Anatomy of Crisis. It was the cascade that Um, was let off or set off in New York that amplified the already natural recession. And so we all know of Wall Street, but Milton, in this episode, he goes specifically towards um, one bank in particular, right? And according to him, this bank had a quote-unquote far-reaching effect and it need never have happened. And he asked, why did it fail? 
end quote. He points out that many banks had difficulties, but still didn't fail. But this one in particular had some special characteristics. What bank was this? And the name of the bank is actually one of the first unique characteristics that made it very different compared to others. It was actually the name itself. In New York, it was named, quote, the Bank of the United States, end quote. It was a misleading name primarily to immigrants who believed it was some kind of official government bank, a bit more secure, when in fact it was just some regular Joe Schmo commercial bank located off Delaney Street in the Lower East Side of New York. So that's one thing, the name itself. But the second characteristic that made this particular bank unique was its ownership, Jewish ownership. And so we'll leave that there for now. But it's important to ask the question, you know, why do these two characteristics of this bank matter? Milton Freeman goes on. They both play a large part in attracting a large number of depositors. But not just any depositors. Depositors from many other local Jewish businessmen in the city. We will be getting into banking panics. So you may hear the term run on banks or making a run on a bank. This was definitely a major contributor to the collapse specifically of this bank and then many others. Milton points out that this was the main domino that fell over for the Great Depression in New York. Or the main domino that tipped over in New York that led to the Great Depression. Because those large number of depositors, they panicked to get their funds physically out of the bank. And so briefly, let's go and touch base on what a run on a bank is. Let's say you got a check and you deposit the check or the cash in Bank of America. That bank takes it. You may think that that goes into a vault and they just keep it there until you're ready to take it out. No, no, no. The bank has to invest it. That's how it makes its money. In order to make money to pay their expenses, their employees, taxes, whatever, anything to keep the walls up and make a profit, they take your money and lend it out and capitalize on interest paid on that money. That's how the business works. So if all the depositors, quote unquote, make a run on the bank, and go and try and withdraw their funds, well, unfortunately, the truth is, you ain't receiving it. The bank keeps a fractional reserve, a reserve amount that is just a fraction of their total amount that they keep on deck, right? An actual percentage of cash to actually give back to their select few depositors that want to get some money. Day-to-day stuff, not a full-on run, not all of them. So it's crazy. When you open up your phone, open up your app, and take a look into your account, the reality is that money is not there. It's just a number. So, during tough and uncertain times, much like the Great Depression, runs on banks occurred all over. 
And this in turn will shut down a bank. Banks fold up shop. It's not a great place to be on either side of the failure. People don't get their funds and the banks are out of business. So it's important to kind of mediate and handle this scenario when people start to make runs on banks. And in particular, back to the bank at hand, the Bank of the United States. Milton Friedman points out that the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, which was just a few blocks down, he said this bank could have and was supposed to bail out and save the Bank of the United States. In fact, that Federal Reserve Bank was set up 17 years earlier to do just that, help out during a bank failure such as a bank run, which is crazy. That's what it was intended for. That was the excuse for it. So meeting after meeting at the Federal Reserve of New York, he takes us inside. It's pretty neat how he travels to these locations, but he takes us inside and explains that they were plotting and scheming on ways to save this bank. They were at least considering the job that they were supposed to do. Big names like J.P. Morgan was there, and they refused to subscribe. Their plan at hand was to merge other local banks, so that way they had assets and they could show good faith to their depositors that their money is okay, right? But it didn't pan out. The Bank of the United States closed its doors forever. And it impacted a large portion of the business community and its depositors. So those businesses were destroyed. Savings vanished. And the unfortunate truth is not a penny would have been lost if the Federal Reserve of New York, people such as J.P. Morgan, who didn't sign on, this is all from Milton Freeman, if they would have salvaged it. And that's interesting. And my question was, well, shit, it's just one bank. Who cares? Well, sure enough, he goes into that. Other banks in surrounding areas of New York thought that the closing of this bank would only hurt people locally. They were wrong. Right? Again, partly because of the, de the depositors were businessmen. So it affected multiple businesses and those consumers. But it's also important to note that this bank in particular was one of the largest banks that had ever been permitted to fail up to that time in 1930. It is kind of a scary notion. If you think about it down the street, a big bank collapsing, you're going to start to really consider and think about your own funds. If your bank is safe, because they lend to, get, they lend to each other. So if one bank fails and they owe money to another bank down the street, this could be a problem because, again, that's how they make their money moving forward. This collapse of the bank led to even more bank runs and failures, and it literally was a domino effect across the nation that further perpetuated the Great Depression throughout the 1930s. And we will get into FDR when he gets elected in 1933, um, in our second portion of this show. But I think Milton's main point is, again, government. The Federal Reserve System is a government program that was installed 
for the sole purpose of assisting banks with additional cash when needed. Just like this situation, to meet the demands of depositors. This Federal Reserve is funded by us, the taxpayer, to do its one job, essentially, or at least a very, very prominent and serious job, and yet it did not preserve this bank, the Bank of the United States in New York. Milton Freeman says, quote, The Federal Reserve allowed the quantity of money to decline slowly, thereby throttling the monetary structure. A growing economy, which it once was, needs additional money in order to prevent deflation and other problems. The Federal Reserve could have prevented them from having the disastrous consequences they did by stepping in. So if the government has stepped in, bought government securities on a large scale, and provided the necessary cash reserves for the depositors, they would have found that they could have that the depositors could have got their money and soon would have stopped asking for it, overall preventing the runs from escalating. End quote. So in short, it was the government's poor monetary policy that stifled the economic recovery of that natural recession, but instead it perpetuated the crisis that we will learn about and know about for years to come, just hopefully in the right manner, because this is an important thing that is always left out. Instead, it's blaming that free market. And so... Although these policies occurred almost 100 years ago, Jesus, a boatload of government policies derived directly from them to today. Central banks and government officials are afraid of a new Great Depression, right? The problems back then of too little money, the deflation, now are plaguing us today with too much money. I'm sure this word inflation has been buzzing around the internets, right? Inflation, inflation. It's the highest ever. And now we have fiat currency, which is a whole other beast to tackle. I can do that in a whole separate episode. But the truth is this. This Great Depression led to more government intervention, and they have never dialed it back. And so on that note, I segue into his fourth episode, From Cradle to Grave. And it fits quite perfectly, actually. Again, the fear of the new Great Depression exploded government spending and programs. And one in particular, this episode is my favorite once again, the government intervention of the welfare system. I love quotes, if you haven't noticed by now. Milton Milton Freeman, quote, The Great Depression persuaded the public that private enterprise was a fundamentally unstable system, that the Depression represented a failure of free market capitalism, and that the government had to step in to perform the essential function of stabilizing the economy, of providing security for its citizens. The widespread acceptance of these views sparked the enormous growth of the power of government that has occurred in the decades since and is still going on, end quote. I wanted to really, really highlight within that quote of providing security 
for its citizens. We want to keep you safe. From cradle to grave. It really is quite fascinating. Keep that in mind. I move forward. After the Great Depression, politicians look for a new approach. And here I introduce Franklin Delano Roosevelt, known as FDR. He became president in 1933, right in the midst of the Great Depression. He and his administration had an agenda to expand government spending and interventions, such as the welfare system. And again, this was in response to that free market capitalism that caused the Great Depression. You may have heard the name, the New Deal, FDR's New Deal. It has a ring to it, very similar to something, what is it? Oh, the Green New Deal, right? Really, really close ring. (laughs) So although the Great Depression had its uniqueness, these response policies implemented by FDR and the New Deal Milton Freeman points out that you could find these same exact policies that are actually occurring or or have occurred in other parts of the world as well. So he takes us very briefly to some specific examples. One is is these government measures deriving back to the German Chancellor Otto von Bismarck. So Bismarck's Germany was the first modern state to institute old age pensions, social security. And it also tagged along other similar government interventions, and it bears a very strong resemblance to FDRs. These were implemented in 1889, um, and so FDR came into play in 1933, so we can take a look that this did occur prior. This isn't some new thing. And also another example, in the early 20th century, Great Britain followed suit to Bismarck's Germany. Former prime ministers of the UK, David Lloyd George, and the famous Winston Churchill, they too instituted old age pensions and similar government plans. And this was these were all precursors of the modern welfare state. At these particular times when these were installed, these programs weren't in practice in the U.S. Again, it was the Great Depression that set it off. But it is important to note that professors in schools, intellectuals on the campuses, they were very aware of these landmarks and these policies that occurred in Bismarck's Germany and and in the U.K. They were very aware of it, and they brought it to the table as prominent and confident ideas to FDR and his administration, specifically in the governor's house in Albany, New York. This is where it all went down in developing these programs. They were going to be the saviors, you see, the saviors. The problem is a lot of these professors themselves, they didn't personally experience the Great Depression, but like all government bureaucrats and especially those who are anti-capitalists, they were confident that the government could play a major role and solve all of our problems for good. FDR's very first government finance project was to solve massive unemployment which was the biggest issue at the time, building highways, bridges, and dams. 
He also signed in unemployment benefits. The National Recovery Administration was set up to revitalize industry. The Social Security Act was passed. They were doing distributions of certain surpluses of food. And then, of course, welfare payments. But see, with all of these plans and all of these things that were being enacted, it always comes with something else. These measures came with more rules, red tape, and regulations. This stuff stifles free market capitalism. There's really no other way to paint it for you. And it is very similar and much more profound today in regards to those regulations. Milton Freeman, quote, At the federal level, the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare alone has a budget larger than any other government in the world, aside from Russia and the U.S. This was back in 1980 when he said this. And these measures often do not help those they intend to help. End quote. It is the same song and dance. I am playing a broken record over and over again. Intentions. Good or deceitful. They're not helping. And that is his point. And I think that's why he created this entire free to choose series. But moving back into the episode. I really love that he actually interviews real life people. And gets their perspective and opinion and interviews them. One specific family really, really touched my heart. And it's honestly quite sad. This system, I, or this episode, I really encourage people to watch. It is really, really vivid and eye-opening. But these, this family he interviews, he's just explaining how the welfare system is not as beneficial as claimed by you know, bureaucrats and politicians. It's all rhetoric. He highlights how the welfare system destroys independence. And this family is a prime example. And the the wife, she says, they're sitting on a couch with the husband and two kids. And she says that, you know, people are capable of working. But they can't. It's the way the system is set up. It doesn't allow them to. They're trapped. Right? And if they make and if they make a certain amount of money over the requirement or what have you, they lose those payments. And I've witnessed this firsthand myself within my own family as well and other friends' families. They're afraid to go out in the real world and lose that guaranteed income to go and make a living, right? They're just comfortable with that just enough to get by mentality secured and guaranteed like that quote earlier right security for the citizens and it's all on the taxpayer dollar i don't think that benefits the society as a whole especially them this woman continues the mother and the children are better off if the husband isn't working or if the husband isn't there which breaks up poor families and it's, and it's insane, but it's true. If there is situations where the husband isn't there or doesn't have a job, more money comes in. Families take advantage of that, and this really does break up families, which also leads to a shitload of other problems. 
And then Milton goes on to say it's a generational effect because then their children end up growing up and being caught up in the welfare trap as well. So these issues that this family is experiencing is real and can be multiplied tenfold. And I can also urge you to go back and listen to my minimum wage. I go off on statistics towards the end of that episode um, about how these programs from LBJ in particular, that's in the 1960s, how they were implemented even more so. And the exact opposite was occurring. There wasn't any progress in these systems, right? And I will go towards, uh, I will touch briefly on the debate portion of this episode towards the end. It's, it's really, really interesting to see both sides of this, uh, both sides of the spectrum and seeing the discourse on the issues of the welfare state. We have to keep in mind that these programs were sold to the public as savior policies, right? These programs were a big reason why so many black Americans started voting Democrat, specifically for FDR, right? And so they are the ones that are predominantly getting caught in this trap. And so the people who get on welfare, Milton goes on to say that they just simply lose their dignity, And then they end up becoming subjects of their welfare supervisors, treated like children. Thomas Sowell says, quote, I haven't met an individual on welfare who hasn't felt like he or she has been treated like a child, end quote. And it sucks because they might find a better job, a better opportunity, but again, they're afraid to take it. Like I stated earlier with my family and other people, um, You know, it's a stifling arrangement. They're afraid to take a job because they might lose it three, six, nine months down the road. And then it takes, it's an entire process to hop back onto welfare. And they don't want to risk it. And it's a self-perpetuating cycle rather than just a temporary state of affairs. Is it helping? You know? And so... Is it helping? That is the question. Is there other examples? And of course, Milton thrives in this department. He then takes us to a completely different country. Right? So that family, that family I was talking about, that was a specific family in the Bronx of New York. Right? And so then Milton takes us to a completely different com- country. But he kind of sneaks you in there. He He doesn't let you know that he's in a new country because it looks exactly the same. The housing project that he takes us to looks damn near like the Bronx, but it's actually the home estate, a housing project in Manchester, England. And it looks identical. It's absolutely crazy. Same kind of flats, massive housing unit, decrepit uh, crime and vandalism is prevalent. Graffiti, boarded up windows, broken windows, it's dirty and trashed. I mean, I just look at it and I just think, same system, same symptoms. And it sucks, again, 
I just honestly feel really bad because I know these people have potential and there's kids all around in that area playing. And honestly, the people just look drained. They look deprived. The majority of them are white. So it isn't really a skin color thing, right? We're looking at systems that are supposedly put in place to help the poor. Here he also interviews and dives into a family's life. Uh, One particular gentleman is living off Social Security and the woman of the home is being interviewed and she literally says, quote unquote, it feels like they own you. I mean, no one wants to feel like that, like they're owned by somebody. It's terrible. This section of the video really blew my mind. And again, it hurts my heart. They look so dismal. No hope of prosperity. This is the system that's being championed. That is the savior policy. I, I, beg, to def, I beg to differ. This to me looks like modern day slavery. The system takes the incentive away from gentlemen such as him in his house with his kids. But unfortunately, from his perspective, he's just making the best decisions for his own interests and for his family's interests. And here they are in these rundown housing units. So Milton has a suggestion. If we pull this system out gradually, it can give them opportunity to finally go out and be self-sufficient have some purpose, and maybe even be prosperous or far greater than that. Far greater than they could ever imagine. I truly do believe believe that human beings, every human being, has the potential to make incredible strides, strides in life and change people's lives for the better. And it's crazy. These programs have been disappointing, in my opinion, And in Milton Freeman's opinion, I really do resonate with him. And Thomas Sowell, why is it? Milton Freeman goes on, and this is a long quote, but I just, he says it perfectly. He's very eloquent with words. But he believes the basic reason that these programs have been so disappointing, quote, it is hard to achieve good objectives with bad means. And the means we have been using are bad. It involves the fact that some people are spending other people's money for objectives determined by a third group of individuals. Nobody spends somebody else's money as carefully as he spends his own. Nobody has the same dedication to achieving somebody else's objectives that he displays when he pursues his own. And that is so true. I'm going to end that quote there and jump back into it in a second. But that is so true. And it's the epitome of the free market. Like on a moral standard. That to me makes sense. These programs to me, they don't make sense to me. Economically or morally. I think I've made enough episodes stating that case. But let's go back to Milton Friedman's quote. 
Quote, the programs have an insidious effect on the moral fiber of both the people who administer the programs and those who are supposedly benefiting from them. For those administrating it, it gives them a feeling of almost godlike power. For the people who are supposedly benefiting, it instills a feeling of childlike dependence. Their capacity for personal decision-making atrophies. I mean, end quote. It is so beautifully put and so true. And then, so on top of that, it, it doesn't benefit who they supposedly are benefiting. And it's all at the taxpayer's dollar, right? He then goes into one last segment before I go into his proposed solution and then the debate portion. But he then goes into how these programs, I mean, go figure, they just misuse money, right? They they don't handle someone else's money as efficiently because it's not their money. And he goes to specifically to look at Access to Work, which is a publicly funded employment support program. Um, and Milton highlights how they had a special investigation into the funds that they administer. And he showed footages of thousands and thousands of reels of tape that record every payment from every single recipient. And they came to the, clu- to the conclusion that $7.5 billion had been lost by fraud, waste, and abuse in one single year. They are more likely to just absolutely be clumsy with it. They're not going to be efficient with it. And it's just straight up true. Um, Thomas Sowell goes in during the debate portion. He states some figures, quote, if you took all the money spent on poverty in the U.S. and divided it by all the poverty families, you'd come out with a figure of about 32000 per family. And the whole place starts laughing because that's a shitload of money at the time. The average poverty family apparently is not getting that money. So clearly, someone in between the Treasury and those families is getting an awful lot of that money, end quote. And he's right. I mean, his reasoning behind it, it's common sense with this. It's the inefficiency of the program. If we cut out the middleman, not only would you potentially be able to allocate more money to these families, but then it will also be less of a burden on the taxpayer myself, who I'm giving money to them, right? And now we can eliminate that chance of fraud, inefficiency, overspending on all the employees, just paper pushing. Blah. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. And the free market, honestly, saves all of that. And that is what they argue. So let's move back. Milton Friedman He ends this segment before the debate on his proposal of a negative income tax. And he says it's, quote, the best or the least bad idea. And so a positive income tax, right, we're familiar with this. You're entitled to a personal amount of exemptions and deductions. And then above that amount, you pay taxes on it. So a negative income tax, a few scenarios, suppose you have no income. A fraction of your unused exemptions will be paid to you by the government. So it is a subsidy. 
And this is just some way of guaranteeing some minimum income if you have none. But now if you earn some income, you still get a fraction of that unused exemption, not the full, as if you didn't make any money. Now that you earn some, it kind of cuts into that exemption. But then as your earnings rise, the the supplement to your income, the unused exemptions that I use in the first two examples, they become smaller and smaller. And it's all dependent on how much more you earn. So the more you earn, the more or the less that we get that's given back to you until it equals out and you break even and then you start to become more self self-dependent. Okay. And honestly, when you think about it, it is the most practical way to kind of slowly get people off the welfare system. He really had a passion to just gut it completely, but he didn't want to cold turkey it. Right. And so this, even though it's not ideal, he doesn't like subsidizing at all. If it was up to him, he's full-blown free market. But this is the best and most practical way to help people become more self-dependent without just pulling the damn rug completely under them, right? Right out the gates. But overall, I feel, honestly, that this is a great transition of, um, you know, where we are now and where we want to go. And I guarantee this is not occurring right now. They did not take the Milton Friedman notes. It is still alive and well, if not expanding ever further. And so this debate is probably one of my favorite. It is entertaining. I love, again, that he brings in people with different points of views uh, to challenge him, watch his footage and create some discourse. There is a live audience and a moderator And it's pretty civilized. It's great. From Cradle to Grave. Again, I just love that name. Uh, This episode, again, speaks volumes to me. And so one person that he brings, a gentleman invited by the name of James R. Dumpson. He's the chief administrator of the Human Resources Administration in New York City from 1974 to 1976. And once this film ended on this episode, he's... He started it off and he said that he had a growing sense of anger after watching this episode. And then he gave his case. Thomas Sowell said the same thing right after. He said, yeah, I felt anger too, but for completely different reasons. You see, Dumson was upset because he felt Milton Friedman and his diagnosis and arguments against the welfare system lacked significant info and context that he failed to mention that the welfare system was there because of the failures of capitalism. He didn't explain the exact mechanisms on why and how the free market capitalism was to blame. He just said it just was, and that's why the welfare system is there. But Thomas Sowell, on the other hand, he was furious over the fact that he can see these programs are simply not helping at all, right? And, you know, his anger, uh, I'm going to quote him. He said, in a city where he grew up, in a city where he grew up, under very different conditions during the period of capitalistic failure, when there wasn't this humanitarianism and 
when it actually was possible for people to live better and get out of that poverty. Now, people living in the same exact place where he lived years ago, when racism and discrimination were much higher and prevalent, he said it's much harder for them to escape that poverty today because of these interventions. End quote. We have to realize, you know, these empty buildings that are shown in the film and the crime rate and the breaking up of the family, homelessness, all of that. Thomas claims this did not exist in the previous system that Mr. Dumpson is blaming, right, for the poverty it created and, and why the welfare system had to have been created to solve and help it. Or they would have just died, I guess, right? But Thomas Sowell claims it wasn't as bad. It wasn't like that, and there was much more opportunity to climb up out of it. Now, as said earlier in this episode, the welfare trap makes it much, much more difficult. There was also another guest, Helen Bowen O'Bannon, Secretary of welfare for the state of Pennsylvania, state of Pennsylvania. So these are the big dogs, right? They're going to they're going to obviously fight tooth and nail to support and keep the welfare system cuz it's their job. They don't want to lose their job. But she makes the claim the private sector doesn't create jobs at a fast enough rate. People drift into needing help in this society in order to exist. So kind of the same angle as Mr. Dumpson. The welfare system was created in the 30s, remember, FDR, to do just that. She says it's not corrupting society. She's blaming the capitalist society for, for breaking up families, the economy not expanding fast enough, and the health and education system failing. The, the welfare system takes the remains and helps people live with dignity, end quote. So that's kind of the same exact argument. It's a little contradictory, in my opinion, because breaking up of families didn't start occurring. Thomas Sowell lets her have it. This didn't really start occurring until later on after the implementation of these uh, interventions. Um, the economy, it expands fast through free market, where there's less regulations and red tape and more freedom to create business and expand, right? I don't understand how the welfare state system <laughs> is supposed to help the economy expand faster. They never clarify that. Our education system is predominantly ran and along the same lines as the welfare system. We'll get into that into another episode, but it's along the same exact lines that are predominantly left-wing, anti-capitalist, you know, pro-government intervention ideology supporting it so her statement doesn't make sense to me and thomas soul responds you are you are subsidizing people to fail even moderate success the money gets taken away you see this in the welfare system but also in the school system giving money to schools with low scores and if the school improves education that money gets taken away Leading people, leading to people to become more dependent and reliant on the handouts, end quote. And he's absolutely right. And I would just ask Helen O'Bannon, like, 
Has this program been successful? You know, they get in a little argument about the bottom 20% being in poverty. And Thomas Sowell just asks, like, well, have you changed it? Has it gotten better? The answer is no. The main difference is, um, not necessarily has it gotten better, but would they be better off getting out of it if it wasn't for this program that was put in place? And it goes on and on. It is, again, a really, really great debate. And the entire episode is a great episode. And I think and highly recommend everyone to take a gander if this didn't really do it for you. But hopefully it did. Um, It's just same song and dance. These government interventions, this rhetoric from politicians and academics They just think that this is the best route for us to go, and there's just no proof behind it. So as I wrap up, I continue to encourage people to look at what exactly we are funding, you know, as taxpayers, and where does it go in all sectors. The welfare state is the most obvious to me from an economic and moral standpoint that it is just not the right program and should really be gutted, but obviously not cold turkey. But I love the idea of Milton Freeman's negative income tax. I mean, like he said, that seems like the best or least bad idea. And it's important to note as well how I started off this episode. You know, what happened during these crazy events that really, really changed people's lives in catastrophic ways and what really occurred. We need to do more reading, more research, and then think about what exactly are the proposed solutions and what are the actual solutions, right? And I can't stress this enough. Milton Freeman, Thomas Sowell, they don't believe that a free market capitalist society is perfect. But it damn sure is better than the welfare state. And it is a myth to think that the free market capitalism created the Great Depression. And it's unfortunate because these bureaucrats such as FDR and beyond came in with their capes thinking that they could implement the savior policies. And years later, here we are, 2022. Ask yourself, have things gotten better? So please, like, share, subscribe, follow. I'm on Rumble, YouTube, Apple, Spotify, all that shit. And again, thank you from the bottom of my heart for tuning in to the Unveiled Patriot with yours truly, Travis Masterbone, and I look forward to you tuning in next time. Farewell. Farewell.